This question, who is Jesus? Is Jesus really God? Is a question that I think a lot of people wrestle with. It's a question that many people ask. And the reason why is really because of what we talked about last week when we were talking about this question of narrowness. Pastor Mark was here and we were talking about, uh, is Christianity too narrow? We live in a world of, of diversity where there's many different religions and faith traditions. And yet what we saw, what we talked about last week is the reality that all these religions, all these philosophies, ultimately at the end of the day, make exclusive truth claims. Each of them claims to ultimately have a monopoly on what is true, what is right, what is good, what is beautiful. And it's something that you just, you simply cannot escape. And so this question, is Jesus really God, is one that kind of follows on the heels of that question because of the fact that at the heart of the Christian message is this idea that if you really want to know the way, the truth, and the life, you have to look at Jesus, because our central claim is that, that he alone is God, that, that he is the one true way. That question, is he, is he really God? Do we have any reason to believe he's God? And if so, why is, is one that I think we have to wrestle with this morning. Because honestly, this is a question that, that I myself wrestled with as, as somebody who was exploring Christianity for the very, very first time. Because when I looked at Jesus, what I saw in Jesus was somebody who was just very, very different from the other leaders of the, and other founders of the major world religions. So this morning, I really want us to ask the question, who is this person? Who is Jesus really? Is he really God? But I think it's only right that before we dive into the message that we take a few moments to allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds. So would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have invited us into this space and that you are a God who doesn't turn away questions. You don't shut them down. You actually invite us to draw close, to bring our questions before you, to explore and to seek out answers. And so this morning, as we kind of continue to explore God together, and as we wrestle with this question, is Jesus really God? Lord, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would open our hearts and our minds so that we could receive the message you have. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, you know, uh, growing up, as uh, my family didn't really go to church, we didn't talk about religion too much, but as a teenager, I started to explore. And as I started to explore, uh, you know, the different world religions, I came across Jesus, and what I saw in Jesus was something that was truly baffling, truly astounding, something that was truly unique among the world's religions, because when I looked at Jesus and I compared him to the founders of other world religions, what I saw was a character, was a person who was, on the one hand, incredibly attractive and appealing, and on the other hand, was completely dumbfounding and baffling all at the same time. And in fact, I think it's a testimony to the uniqueness of Jesus in the fact that all the other world's religions try to find some sort of space for him. Okay, that in Islam, they, 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 they can't get around Jesus, so they try to make Jesus just another prophet, just another messenger. And in Buddhism, they can't really get around Jesus, so they try to make Jesus kind of one of these other enlightened beings from, from, West, from Western cultures. And uh, I, in fact, I, was, I just flew in from India yesterday. And while I was in India, I find Hindus have little icons of Jesus trying to depict him as like another incarnation of Vishnu. 
You see, the fact that Jesus is this overwhelming figure is shown by the fact that nobody seems to be able to quite get around him. They all want to find some sort of space for him. They all try to kind of fit him into their own box, and yet they can't do it because of the fact that he's just so baffling. And as I looked at him, and as, as a seeker, I started to wrestle with Jesus, what I found is that I'm in pretty good company, that, I, that there's, there's not a single person, whether Christian or non-Christian, who hasn't had to deal with Jesus as one of the central figures of human history. In fact, Gandhi, talking about Jesus, said this. He said, Jesus was a man who was completely innocent and offered himself as a sacrifice for the good of others, including his enemies, and became the ransom of the world. It was a perfect act. Likewise, Albert Einstein had this to say. He said, as a child, I received instruction both in the Bible and in the Talmud. I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. And likewise, the author H.G. Wells said this, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. And I read quotes like that, and I see how the other world's religions try to make space for Jesus, and the question becomes, Why? What is it about Jesus that makes him stand out? Why is he someone that everybody who looks at human history feels like they at least have to address and wrestle with? And I would argue that really when you look at the life of Jesus, what you see are five things about him that make him utterly astounding. That on the one hand, make him very appealing and attractive to so many, and yet also very baffling and confusing. First thing that you notice when you look at the life of Jesus is that Jesus is rigorously gentle. Rigorously gentle. Here's what I mean when I say that. Jesus is rigorous in the sense that what he taught and what he told his followers to hold to was a moral code that was more rigorous than any other on the face of the planet. That if you were actually to look at the Gospel of Matthew and read through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, what you find him doing is extolling a kind of virtue that no one else on the face of the planet has been ever able to keep. See, many religions and philosophies say things like, you shall not murder, and you shall not steal, and you shall not commit adultery. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that, I tell you, if you even have anger in your heart toward your brother, you have already murdered him. Likewise, he says, if you even look at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. Many of the world's religions and philosophies tell us to love our neighbors as ourselves, but only Jesus says that we are to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. The moral code that Jesus lays down is staggering in how impossible it truly is. And in fact, uh, I remember having a conversation with a Muslim friend of mine in college. And one of the things he said is he said, part of the reason I have a hard time with your depiction of Jesus is that he makes it too hard. One of the things that I like about uh, 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 Muhammad is that Muhammad only holds us accountable and, and says that only God holds us accountable for what we do. So it's about doing good things and, and behaving 
properly, but, but he doesn't judge us on what we think about people in our heart of hearts. He doesn't judge us for our internal life. This idea that God would, would peer into our very souls and judge us for what he finds there, that just, that seems impossible. Jesus upholds a moral code that is far more rigorous than anything else on the face of the planet. And yet at the same time, he is incredibly gentle with people who fail to keep it time and time again. You see, most people, when they lay down laws or forms of morality, then judge others by them. They lay them down and then they look down on those who fail, who can't keep it perfectly. And yet what we find when we look at the life of Jesus is whenever he encounters people who've fallen short of the moral code, he meets them with a kind of grace and forgiveness and gentleness, which is just astounding. He doesn't interact with them from a place of superiority, but rather addresses them right in the midst of their failings and communicates love, forgiveness, and offers them a new start. It's part of the reason why when the people bring the woman caught in adultery to Jesus, after the people, uh, Jesus first and foremost lays down a rigorous law. He looks at the crowd that has come to stone her and he says, I say, any one of you who is without sin, let him be the one to cast the first stone. And the entire crowd disperses. And then Jesus looks at the woman and he says, daughter, is no one left to condemn you? She says, no one, sir. Says, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and leave your life of sin. Jesus is rigorously gentle. There's another paradox in the life of Jesus, and that is that he's graciously narrow. He's graciously narrow in the sense that he says there really is only one way to God. There's not multiple paths that you can choose from. There's not multiple ways that you can worship him. No, there is truly only one way. In fact, Jesus says that, there is, that it's a narrow road and that few find it. In fact, he says if you want to have a relationship with God, the only way you're going to have that relationship is through him. In a world of incredible religious diversity, Jesus is incredibly narrow. Very, very narrow-minded in insisting that there is only one way. And yet he also insists that that way is open to everybody. He's graciously narrow because he says, while there is only one way, the door is wide open and anyone can come. We see this in the life of his own disciples. Consider the people who Jesus calls to follow him. They were not the religious elite of their day. By many uh, people's estimations, they were kind of the losers and the outcasts. They were the ones who failed to make it in rabbi school. Some of them were tax collectors. Others of them were religious fundamentalists. All of them were looked down upon by polite people in their society. And yet Jesus says, I want you to come and follow me. In fact, over and over again throughout his life and ministry, he goes to people that others have overlooked and he says, you can come too. You can come too. You can come too. He doesn't just stick with the religious elite or those of his own camp. He crosses boundaries and invites people from every kind of background to follow him, to know the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is graciously narrow. Third paradox about Jesus is that he's humbly egocentric. Now, here's what I mean by this. He's egocentric in the sense that he says some pretty astounding things about himself. 
Things that if anybody else were to say them, we would look at that person and call them nuts. Jesus goes around and he says, I am the bread that comes down from heaven. And if you feast upon my flesh, you will have eternal life. Jesus says, I am the light of the world who came so that people might have light. I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. I am with the Father and the Father is in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And in fact, before Abraham was, I am. Over and over again, Jesus basically claims to be divine. He calls himself the Son of God. He, calls him, he takes the very divine name of God and calling himself the great I Am, the name Yahweh, he assumes for himself. He is incredibly egocentric in that regard, and yet he is humbly egocentric. Because while insisting on his divinity, he still serves radically, lovingly, graciously, and humbly every single person that he comes across. So humble, in fact, that on the night when his own disciples were about to abandon him, when one of them was about to betray him and hand him over to those who would ultimately crucify him, Jesus gathered them together, took off his outer robe, knelt down in the dirt, and performed a task that was seen to be fit only for the lowest of slaves and by washing his disciples' feet. He says, just as I have served you, so you are to serve one another. Over and over and over again, Jesus spends time caring for the lepers, sitting with outcasts, serving and caring for those that no one else would even touch. He's humbly egocentric. You see, when you look at the other world's religions, you either find religious leaders who are humble but not egocentric or egocentric but not humble. You have some religious leaders who come and say, no, I am not divine. Do not worship me. I only come bringing you a message. I only come pointing you in the way that you should go, but, but, but don't worship me. Worship God. Worship the divine. Or you find religious leaders who say, I am divine, and, and so you should worship me. And then they treat everyone around them like they're dirt. They swindle and they steal. They're conniving and self-centered. But you don't find anybody who is both humble and egocentric at the exact same time except for Jesus. The one who over and over again insisted that he was divine and yet loved, served, and sacrificed for everyone that he encountered. It brings us to the fourth paradox about Jesus. He is uniquely self-sacrificing. Among the great world's religions, there's only Jesus who dies for his people. Who insists that he has come to take our place in the punishment which should be ours. Jesus comes and lives the life that we should have lived. He was perfect in every way. Yet he dies the death that we should have died. Judged and, and nailed to a cross. Punished in our place. No other world's religion says that. No other world religion says that someone is actually going to take your place for you. Every other world religion insists that you have to do it on your own. That if you want to find enlightenment, it's up to you to seek it out. That if you want to clean up your life, then you need to begin your 12-step program. That if you want to deal with your sin, then it's up to you to seek forgiveness and to live a perfectly moral, uh, a more, a perfectly moral life. See, every other religion and philosophy basically gives us good advice. 
Advice tells us the good things that we should do, but only Jesus comes with the good news. News announces the good things that have been done for us. And what Jesus says is he says, I have come not to show you the way, I have come to make a way on your behalf. For all the ways that you've fallen short, I will die. For all the ways in which you've rebelled against God and refused to follow him, I will take the punishment for that rebellion so that you can be forgiven, so that you can have life with the one who made you. Jesus is uniquely self-sacrificing. There's no one else in the history of religion and philosophy who does this for others. Last but not least, he was once dead and is now alive. Again, among the world's religions, this is completely unheard of. The fact that Jesus, not in some myth, not in some story, but in human history, in the first century AD, was nailed to a cross by the Romans, was buried in a tomb, and three days later walked out again. The world religion says that this happened in time and space, that there were eyewitnesses who testified to its reality. In fact, so convinced of this central truth were the early Christians that the Apostle Paul said, and if Jesus is not raised from the dead, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Our entire faith hangs on the fact that Jesus, who once was dead, is now alive, and that his resurrection vindicates everything that he claimed about himself, everything that he did. Claims that he did this in time and in space, in human history. We're going to look next week at, at the reasons why we believe that to be true, or the evidence that we have. But let me say this, right here and right now, is that Jesus does this, and, and this is truly unique and unheard of in all the world's religions. See, when I looked at the life of Jesus and I encountered these surprising paradoxes, it led me to the same conclusion that C.S. Lewis came to in his book, Mere Christianity. When he writes this, he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us and he did not intend to. See, with Jesus, there is no middle ground. He is either nuts or he is exactly who he said he is. And if nothing else, you walk out of church this morning and you're clear about where you stand on that issue, then I think that you're in good company. Because when people try to come to Jesus and they try to fit him into their own tradition or they try to just write him off as some sort of great moral teacher, what they're saying is that they haven't actually wrestled with what he claimed and what he did. Because he's either nuts or he's exactly who he said he was. And I will be honest, as I take a closer look at his life, I don't see a madman. I don't see the kind of neuroses and psychoses and, and delusions that you find in those who are obviously clinically uh, nuts. But I find a man who is cool, calm, and collected. Who in every circumstance seemed to know the right thing to say and the right thing to do. Who in every single moment encountered people in a way that was personal, deep, real, and loving. 
It's part of the reason why the early Christians had this to say about Jesus. They said, In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, And after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. See, the reason why I think Jesus is really God, and more than that, that the story of Jesus is the most beautiful story on the face of the planet, is because what it insists is that God was not content to remain distant. Every other religion tells you that if you want to find the divine, if you want to find divine reality, it's out there somewhere and it's up to you and I to seek it. But only Christianity says that the divine has entered into our world seeking us, pursuing us, desiring to have a relationship with us. Our God was not content simply to give us a book or simply to speak a message but desired to enter into our world to dwell with us and to draw us into relationship with himself. It's a beautiful, deep, and profound picture, one that has captivated people down through the centuries. In fact, John Tyson, an author and church planter, uh, tells a beautiful story that he, that he said uh, kind of sums up what God is doing in Jesus uh, by coming to us. And actually, he tells it so well that I'm just going to let him tell that story in his own words. Watch this. I heard a story once about a soldier who had served in Vietnam. There was a group of prisoners who were taken hostage and put in a prison camp where they were not just physically tortured, but they were mentally tortured. And so there would be various false raids where they feel like they were being set free, but it would turn out that it was only their oppressors who were trying to destroy their hope. So one day a group of uh, US Marines were tagged with the operation to rescue these prisoners of war. And so they broke in and they, they found the prisoners on the floor and they were beaten, they were psychologically tormented. But they had a problem. Even though they were there to save them, the prisoners wouldn't trust the liberating force. And so one soldier in a moment of genius and compassion realized what he had to do. So he took off his military uniform and stripped himself down like those prisoners were, laid on the floor in the fetal position and just looked them in the eye so that they could see that he was actually one of them. And after they saw that he was one of them and that he had come to rescue them, they were able to trust him and they got dressed and he was able to lead them to safety. And in many ways, this is why I think we can trust Jesus. Jesus claims to be God but he stripped away all of his power. He stripped away all of the things that may cause us to fear him. And he came down as a human being to look us in the eye when we feel like we can't trust anybody, to say, I know you, I see you, I know what you're going through. Trust me, I can lead you out to the life that you long for. We're desperate to be known. We're desperate to be loved. We're desperate to matter. We're desperate um, to, to live a life of meaning. But who do we trust? And when I heard that, I felt like even in my own heart, I can trust Jesus to lead me to the path of life. I love how he says that. 
Jesus is God who strips away all the things that would make us fear him and gets down on our level to look us in the eye so that we could know that we can trust him. It's part of the reason why Jesus speaks these words to his disciples, talking about why he came, why he does what he does. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. We often read those words as an exclusive statement meant to keep people out, but when Jesus spoke them, he spoke them as words of invitation, calling people to enter in. He said, if you've ever wondered what God thinks about you, whether or not he loves you, whether he desires to be in a relationship with you, whether he has a purpose and a plan for your life, then you need not wonder anymore. You can look at me, you can know me, you can follow me. You can be certain of the love of God when you look into my face, when you see what I have done for you, when you see the lengths that I have gone to rescue you. For I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, Jesus is indeed God, God who has come to us, God who has become one of us so that we might know him, God who entered into our broken world to make things right, to heal what is broken, and to renew all things until he comes again in glory when every tear will be wiped away and all things made new. When we look at Jesus, we see a story that is unrivaled in anything else in history. A story that's worth believing because it's beautiful, but a story that we know we can believe in because it's also true. Jesus is indeed the way, the truth, and the life. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us, our Prince of Peace, the great I Am. And it's in the name of Jesus that we say, Amen.